for some of our applications, it could take like three or four months to install and configure an application because you needed to ship out hardware, you need to wire up the connectivity, you need to place routers and switches and load balances, etc. I think right now when we see some of our applications being fully cloudified and fully automated with workflows, etc., we are down to like minutes and hours to configure systems that used to take months or weeks to do. So I think that is the other big change that things can be done much, much quicker. Welcome to another episode of Transmissions from Tomorrow, the show that gives you an inside route to the people driving the digital transformation of business and technology in the world of telecommunications. And I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. And today I have the honor and privilege of having Mats Carlson in the studio with me. Hi, Mats. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Now, Mats, you're in Sweden. I'm here in Sydney. Um, I understand it's, it's uh, actually early in your morning over there, isn't it? Uh, it's around eight o'clock and it's pretty cold outside and it's pretty dark as well. I think you made a comment before. It's probably the most depressing part of the year, but uh, I was there about a week ago with you. And uh, what was interesting is uh, I went to bed with no snow at some late hour in the night and I woke up and there was snow on the ground, which was exciting. Um, have you got snow there today? No, not snow. It's uh, only icy roads, but uh, no snow yet. But I think you uh, did. You say it was in the the uh, temperature was in the minuses, the minus degrees. Yes, oh, that's that good. Uh, it's, a, it's a special kind of cold out there in Sweden as well. Now you're in. Um, you're just outside of Stockholm, from uh, memory. Uh, how do you pronounce it? I, I always say Kista, but it's, is it Shista? Chista? How do you pronounce it? It's Shista. Uh, Shista. Shista. So it's about yeah. 20, 20, 30 minute drive out of Stockholm, isn't it? Uh, yes, around fifty twenty outside of Stockholm, north of Stockholm, on the way to the major airport. Fantastic. Now, um, just a quick intro to you, Mads. Uh, up till recently, you um, you were the head and, and VP for the Portfolio and Architecture and System Management, but uh, I've just been told that you have an exciting announcement with regard to a whole new role. Um, could you maybe just do a quick intro to yourself and give us a bit of insight into what that exciting new role is? Yeah, since uh, last week, I'm uh, not only heading the Portfolio and Architecture on, on the BA level, but uh, I'm also heading up the... Uh, um, what do we call the head of R&D? And that means that uh, to drive technologies, to drive new ways of working uh, across uh, our full R&D workforce. And that is around uh, 10,000 people in a VA. But that is very much about making sure that we have, uh, that we are using the most modern technology, that we are using the most modern way of working, like DevOps, etc., and that we are trying to do that in a very aligned way uh, across all R&D units. I think today we have like uh, 12 different uh, product development units uh, across the different uh, product areas that we have in our portfolio. So it's a bit of a challenge to, to making sure that we are that we are aligning the way and we are aligning the technology because with, with this transformation over to cloud, we can't really have um, uh, different ways of working and different technology choices. I think everyone is going to the cloud and that means that you need to do, do that in a very aligned way. Right. It's, uh, and I'm, I mean, it sounds like an extremely broad portfolio and challenge for you. Um, but then you've, uh, from memory, you, you joined Ericsson in, I think it was 1989, was it? Is that right? Yes, uh, I was trying to count it. It was like 28 years now. So I was actually joining 1989 uh, as a tester for GSM. And uh, that was uh, in the early days uh, 
when we tried to so that when we were introducing GSM in the 1991. Right. So uh, in the early days of mobile telephony. I remember seeing uh, in the Ericsson Studios uh, this huge um, uh, carry box thing with uh, effectively a radio phone, which uh, just reminded me that you know it wasn't really that long ago that um, the concept of a mobile phone was, was a whole new exciting thing. You carried a big brick around. So, uh, I mean, you know, having joined Ericsson back in 1989, you've effectively seen that whole um, you know, multi-generation shift from kind of you know landline to you know, radio phone to what now basically is little, you know, supercomputers in our hands, haven't you? Yes. Uh, I mean, that's been an enormous evolution. I think, uh, I think also the evolution that GSM actually introduced when we got like a global system more or less that you could use your phone across different countries and, and in different continents. I think that was a major shift in, in mobile telephony. I think that was the kind of starting point of modern mobile telephony. Well, it's, it's certainly, uh, it certainly hasn't shown any um, signs of slowing down. I, I, you know, looking at the, the portfolio that you currently, uh, in your new role, have taken over, uh, before we started recording, you were mentioning some of the technologies you work on from cloud and OpenStack and Hadoop and Spark and the shift from you know, big data and data lakes through streaming analytics. Um, so it, it must be, a, a, I mean, it must get some days where it's just exhausting. Uh, you mentioned that some of your uh, some of your interests outside of work uh, included, uh, I think historically you were into paddling and other things, but um, uh, what sort of things do you do these days to kind of just get out of work and, and wind down? Uh, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of climbing. Uh, when I'm getting above 50, you kind of you start to realize that you are not as fit as you used to do. So nowadays I mostly do uh, running and uh, going out uh, hiking, uh, but uh, Still doing some rock climbing, still doing a lot of skiing in the winter, and trying to be outdoor as, as much as possible. Yeah, I guess once you're uh, in, in, in your world, you're, you're probably sort of in a, in a lab or an R&D or an office environment for the bulk of your work hours. So when you get to your off time of the weekend, uh, the last thing you want to do is go anywhere near technology and go out and reconnect with the planet. I'm really keen to talk a little bit more about the types of technologies that you're currently working with and, and where they're going to go. Uh, we, we spoke a little bit earlier about some of them in particular. I'd love to dive into them. Cloud's a really big part of what you're doing now, isn't it? Yes, the whole cloud transformation is is really key for for 5G more or less. Because if we, if you don't have done cloud before you enter into 5G, you can't really utilize the flexibility in terms of basic workloads, uh, the flexibility and the automation of the network. You really need to do cloud before 5G. So, so I think the whole cloud journey is really key for for utilizing yeah. the 5G technology. And, and there must be a significant shift in, in, in just the general design patterns and approach uh, you were mentioning before that you know once upon a time you you worked with you know dedicated hardware and I know myself you know over the last couple of decades you know the, the shift from a dedicated physical machine where you had racks of hardware and you know when you went looking for a clock cycle when you wanted to, something in the in the CPU or if you wanted to own a thread you know you could be certain that your code was in the in that core and it was going to get that time and as the clock ticked over it was going to run but when you moved to virtualization particularly in cloud. Um, you know, there's a whole new world of challenges there in, in just the cloud infrastructure, isn't there, around just getting... And I know you've done a lot of work with OpenStack. You've done a lot of um, public speaking. I think uh, you did a couple of things around... I think you said it was Atlanta and Paris. You uh, spoke with a team at AT&T around what you're doing with OpenStack. 
Yes, uh, I think we had two sessions uh, with AT&T, and there we were mainly focusing on, uh, I would say, introducing features in OpenStack that would make, uh, I wouldn't say more telco grade, but maybe more more robust systems in OpenStack. For instance, that um, functions like notification. Uh, I mean, in OpenStack, if something breaks down, you don't really get a notification that something is breaking down. The yeah. only way to know that something is breaking down is that you have to ask every five seconds, more or less, are you still alive? Uh, and if no one responds, you believe that the guy is dead. Uh, but uh, so we are kind of pushing a lot from outside that we need this type of uh, functions like notification because otherwise it's very hard to build this type of robust system that we need for for our applications. And is that uh, is there a particular area that you're working on there? I mean, is it is it inside Horizon uh, as far as the scheduling and, and instantiation, or is it all the way down to Swift and, and Cinder at the file system level, or is it across the entire stack? I think mainly it's around, uh, very much around the, the, the basic layers like uh, uh, Nova for for uh, the compute and the neutron stuff. That and I think other things, of course, to making sure that things are connected. Because I mean, another thing that you could do in in OpenStack. This is a couple of years ago, so so don't quote me now. But <laughs> but you could actually start up a, a virtual machine without having any network connectivity to to that uh, VM. Uh, so, I mean, you can look at it, but you can't really use it a lot. So what we are also looking into is making sure that, that for instance, that if you don't have a network connectivity to a specific virtual machine, it's no use to spinning it up. So there was also a lot of synchronization between the different projects uh, in order to, to actually get it work for our purposes. Uh, so that is, I would say, this is the type of areas that we were focusing on. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, trying to, of course, to leverage of, about the kind of innovation speed and the, and the work that is kind of done outside, but trying to push for these things that we believe is, is crucial. But we also believe that some of these features will, will also be needed for, for uh, more uh, enterprise-grade type of application as well. So it, we don't believe it was completely telecom focused. So I think yeah, a lot of the things are really good stuff. Yeah, I, I remember talking to another vendor um, in, in, who used to be in the hardware space, but now in services space, but we won't mention their brand. And uh, they did a lot of work, not just in OpenStack, but also the Linux kernel. And one of the comments that they made was sort of, you've just reminded me of it, and that is that when they take a, an open source platform, whether it's Linux or in this case OpenStack, more often not what happens, they take it out of the, the sort of the developer space and out of small to medium sized enterprise. They put it into, you know, whether it's banking or in your case, telco, and run it through a whole different level of rigor to make it perform. And then when they hand the code back up and they commit it up, uh, the developers turn around and go, wow, we've never seen it done that way before. Or we've never thought of that performance. Because, I mean, in, in the telco world, uh, you know, people listening may not uh, appreciate it, but, I mean, you work in, in sort of sub-millisecond space. I mean, you, you know, you're in sometimes not just the five nines, but six nines, aren't you? So when you look at an open source cloud that's predominantly, I guess, you know, surviving in a three nines world uh, in an enterprise space where things can break and you've got time to recover, uh, even in banking and wealth management and finance and insurance. Uh, if you've got a streaming video from Netflix or if you've got a phone call or, or an SMS that's got to be delivered or, or, or an emergency call, you, you can't have that, can you? You've got to re-engineer this whole thing to, to cope with five or even six nines in some cases. 
Yes, and uh, I mean the service level agreements on on the services that that uh, we provide from a from a telco side uh, that is still five or six nines. I would say five nines, and that, for instance, includes also planned maintenance upgrades. Um, so we don't really have these huge maintenance windows that you can close down the systems during a night. But of course, the the way to implement this is very different compared to what it used to be, because as you say. Uh, previously, we used to build hardware platforms, uh, and that was kind of completely targeted for the applications that they were running. And we were targeting for having like five nines on the hardware platform, including the kind of middleware. Now we need to more or less on the service level achieve the same type of SLAs, but running it on a platform that, that the basic VMs and the basic connectivity between the VMs is more close to like three or four nines than, than uh, five or six nines. And that means that you have to to design applications in a different way compared to, to history. That uh, leads me to something else you were talking about. And, and just before we go on to that, you know, anyone who's not familiar with what we're talking about with these whole nines, I mean, effectively what we're talking about is you start out with 100% availability, which is zero downtime, and you start then looking at whether it's up for 9% of the time and 99% of the time, or you know, 90% of the time means 10% is out. You know, So if you achieved, say, one nine or 90%, that's... that's the, uh, 36 and a half days from memory of downtime, which is outrageous. But when you get to the three nines, you know, you're down to about eight point, what is it, 8.76 or something hours a year, which is still a, a, a lot of time. You know, even if you get it down to 30, 40 minutes a, a month for maintenance, half an hour for maintenance is really nothing. But when you get to the five nines, I mean, that's like, what, five and a half minutes, isn't it, a year? It's five, and, it's five and a half minutes a year. Uh, and that is... Uh, what telecom applications actually be designed for for the last 20, 30 years. So and it's not a new requirement. And you, you've built hardware to that spec. So to then have to then put, I guess, you know, in many ways a hypervisor in the form of OpenStack and then the virtual machines and then a whole software stack and including network function virtualization on top of that. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of moving parts in a, in a software and virtual sense that uh, become a whole new nightmare. Uh, you mentioned you're doing a lot of work in network function virtualization. Um, what can you tell us about where that fits into the brave new world of sort of cloudification of uh, telco services inside Ericsson and particularly the, sh you know, the, the types of workloads and use cases that 5G is going to require in that space? So uh, what we're doing on network function virtualization, that is really to making sure in, in, the, in its initial step is to be able to, to that all our applications should be able to run virtualized. Uh, but not only that, they should, of course, also be able to run virtualized with, with the, on a system level with these SLAs that you were talking about, like the five nines. But I think the most important also is that we need to have a flexible way of deploying them. Uh, that, I mean, if an application, for instance, requires to sit very close to the end user, we actually need to deploy that application very far out. If it can live very centrally, we can deploy it very centrally in, in, in a way to save cost uh, and uh, because it doesn't really need to be close to the user from a latency point of view. And I think the last one is, of course, uh, very much about uh, the OPEX savings that you can do. I mean, for some of our applications, it could take like three or four months to install and configure an application because you needed to ship up hardware, you need to wire up the connectivity, you need to place routers and switches and load balances, etc. I think right now when we see some of our applications being fully cloudified and fully automated with workflows, etc., 
we are down to like minutes and hours to configure systems that used to take months or weeks to do. So I think that is the other big change that things can be done much, much quicker and very much related to then like uh, that OPEC savings, both in terms of cost, but also in terms of lead time. And I guess it also gives you a, a lot of flexibility, isn't it? Because I mean, there's a, as you said, I, mean, I remember rolling out a whole new banking platform uh, about six, seven years ago, then subsequently a whole new publishing platform uh, for, for a news corp. And in both cases, they were used to eight or nine or 10 month deployments for each, you know, whether it was a banking or a publishing platform. And they thought it was normal that, you know, you would ship out racks and you put power into them and then put top of rack switches and then Ethernet cabling and fiber between them and then, you know, routers and switches and servers and, and a whole bunch of other redundancy. You had UPSs and then you had these bespoke dedicated machines with, you know, Windows or Linux or Solaris running. Uh, so really what you're alluding to there is that, you know, if you need a new instance of Linux or a new instance of Windows Server, I mean, you're talking minutes to get that thing up and running, but also that you can, you know, treat, I love this, um, line that a bunch of people are you know, talking about now where they talk about the difference between pets versus cattle, right? Because that's where we're heading, isn't it? We, we, we've got a platform and infrastructure sort of with OpenStack and, and, and NFV where we don't really care if a VM dies because we can re-instantiate it and it's all orchestrated and automated. Um, and, I, you know, e even in the cloud space, I see a lot of people, uh, you know, and I think you were mentioning you do a bunch of work with us now with containerization and, and orchestration where even cutting it down from months to, to hours, uh, once you go from virtual machines to containers, you can go sort of from, you know, one to two hours to minutes really, can't you? Yes, I think the, the reason for going containers is uh, both, I think, there is a performance reasons, uh, I think, because you, you, you get rid of the kind of overhead that, uh, that the hyper-race provides you, or provides or, or gives. The other thing is, of course, that, uh, that can, you can actually build a lot of aggregated advanced services where you combine already existing services and you can actually combine them in deployment time. You don't need to combine them in compile time or design time. And I think that type of flexibility, I think that is the next step for, for, uh, for our applications to really making sure that you can utilize the technology even further to become much, much more flexible in, in, in providing new services and new type of applications, more or less uh, at deployment time. Do you um, do you see Ericsson adopting the sort of the uh, you know what some people might call microservices model, or in some cases we talk about the Lambda design model, where we're almost serverless and we're essentially describing the service we want to deliver and it's instantiated on demand? Is is that kind of where Telco is going, and particularly the likes of Ericsson? Yes, uh, I think one of the as I said, we started about my, my new job about R and D, and one of the things that we are now driving heavily is is the transformation to to a microservices based ways of working. Uh, the reason is, of course, uh, not only as I said about the flexibility and the speed, but the other reason, of course, doing microservices is of course the efficiency gains that you can get out of it in terms of the speed of your new application, the reuse of of already existing services. So. So for us, it's, it's crucial of, of being very early on, on the microservices track um, because uh, it's, there is so many benefits in all dimensions to be there. But then, of course, there is also a lot of technical challenges. <laughs> yeah, well, you, know, you, you mentioned it before. I mean, you know, each of these big shifts, uh, I mean, they're, they're significantly large cha challenges in their own right. I mean, you know, we've, we've both lived through the Y2K experience and, and I'm sure you'll agree that, you know, most companies left it late and, and struggled to cope with it and, and you know we were all up to the middle of the night trying to uh, deploy patches and fixes right up to the last minute in some cases 
certainly with mainframe and mid-range environments. Um, but some of these changes are, are moving very, very fast. I mean, when we're talking about you know, cloud is one of those things where, in my view, it's, it's already happened. People just have to get on the bus because there is no avoiding it. Uh, network function virtualization, that's just a given as well. It's built into the, into the entire stack. It's in the DNA. And I, I look at the likes of, say, Office 365, and people sort of you know, ask me, you know, what are we going to do about cloud? And I say, well, it's, it's happened. You can't buy yes. Microsoft Office 365 unless it's a cloud edition. It just isn't available on, on DVD anymore. Um, but then some really big shifts, and, and I know you're doing some work in this. What can you tell us about what's happening around sort of the, the big data and, and I guess sort of you know, some of the more classic things that people might know as household brands around Hadoop and Spark and, and, and the differences between sort of you know, batch mode, MapReduce processing versus sort of the, the more... I guess, Lambda-friendly stream processing. What's happening in Ericsson and, and, and particularly your world in the digital business side of things in that space? Yeah, I think actually I would like to kind of start that question a bit on looking on the orchestration because the orchestration and the management of, of applications and infrastructure, that needs to be what we call like a closed feedback loop system. And right. that means that you have a control loop, you have a policy engine that kind of looks on what type of rules you're setting up for the SLAs on the services application. And you have an analytics part that is really assembling all, all the data what is happening in the network. And of course, feeding uh, the policy engine and the policy engine then takes decision and uh, immediately um, um, talks to the controller to, to do changes in the network or reconfigure or, or do something that really makes the service uh, keeping the same service level or making it work again or whatever. So so when we start with analytics, what's really about making sure that we, we could have a, like a close feedback loop management of, of our system. And uh, some people call it zero touch, uh, but it's really the same thing. So right. When you look at when you look at that type of characteristic, you realize that that analytics for us needs to be real time, uh, because otherwise uh, you can't really uh, talk to the feedback uh, control loop fast enough. So we need to have analytics that works on millisecond levels and not on seconds or, or minutes level. So I think a couple of years ago, I think there was a lot of work around the big data lakes, uh, MapReduce. But even if you tons of computers on MapReduce, it's still like minutes or seconds, and it's not really a closed feedback loop. So like four or five years ago, we really started to invest in what we call then stream-based analytics. And that means that we can more or less take out the streams from all our network functions, from the infrastructure, and uh, have a very advanced uh, filtering and correlation, and meaning actually that we can control the network on a millisecond level uh, based on up to a couple of uh, gigabits of events per second happening wow. in the network. What are the because of, just a, what are the kinds of yeah, cases because, do you throw that at? I mean, you've got um, stuff at the network layer and, and you've got stuff all the way through the application. What are some of the use cases that you're looking for stream analytics to, I guess, you know, problem solve for you? I think the, the major use case, I think right now, is, is I think we can divide them into the two. Uh, one is the zero-touch operations of the network. You don't really need to have a lot of people going and checking what, what happened, what should we do with this alarm, what has happened in the system. We are more or less trying to automate the whole process of, of uh, the operations of the network. The other area of analytics is, of course, um, the customer experience. 
Uh, today, if you are if you are running on a broadband subscription and you have a lot of problems with your broadband subscription, and you try to call the operator, what? Why do I have a lot of problems with my broadband subscription? Uh, they can't really tell you in details. So I think the other ones is of course making sure that that you as a customer for for the services that you are using actually can get a very good feedback. Uh, about the performance, and of course, in the end, you shouldn't even have to call them. It should be should be handled automatically. So the customer experience management and uh, the kind of zero touch operations of the networks are, are today very much the driving of of, uh, of analytics. And I guess it's it's about building some intelligence and smarts into the into everything from the infrastructure layer all the way up to the customer facing pieces. In it, um, you mentioned you're uh, implementing a lot of. Um, R&D effort into machine learning and so forth. Where does that fit into that, that challenge? I think the machine learning is, of course, very much fitting into, it's very closely related to like the policy control. Because today, what we are doing today is very much feeding with predetermined, predetermined rules for, for uh, the actions uh, we should take within a network if something happens. Uh, I think with the machine learning, what we can do is, of course, uh, have machine learning algorithms that really trains uh, the system much, much better what what actions we should take and learn from, from the actions that it's taking all the time. So uh, initially, I, I would say it's really about improving the policy control and the policy steering of a, of a network by, by applying then, uh, machine learning on, on top of the policy steering of, of a network. Right. And... There must be a, I mean, I see a lot of industries suffering from this challenge now. I can imagine telcos right at the bleeding edge. But, you know, when you look at aviation and transport and logistics and, and a whole range of spaces, and, and even banking, we're at the point now where a lot of this original sort of, you know, mainframe terminal uh, design pattern where, you know, we put a terminal on the end of a mainframe and type the data and it would go to a central location. I mean, there's just so much data moving around now, whether it's smartphones streaming outwards or... Uh, sensors and the IoT that's sort of exploding like a Canberra explosion. Um, Ericsson must be seeing this whole issue with sort of what's become edge computing in many ways, surely where you can't just bring it all back to one central location. You're having to distribute and, and break things up into in different sections of the network, are you? Absolutely. And, and I think uh, this, of course, also brings us into the, the 5G area because Historically, the, 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 the delay in the accesses has been like um, uh, on a magnitude higher than actually delay in the transport between right. between the users and and the server somewhere. And of course, with five G, when we're going down to delays of, of like a millisecond type of delay in the access, the only way to kind of use that performance from an application point of view is, of course, to move um, the application closer to the users and. Uh, that is, of course, uh, what, what is driving also, I think, the edge compute. The other way of, of edge compute is, of course, that, that if you're going to take decisions for some of the applications, like it could be haptic control or robotic, et cetera, where you have a need for having like a three to four or five millisecond round trip delay uh, from the user to the access to a server. I mean, the service needs to stand pretty close to, to, the, to the users. Uh, otherwise, it's very hard to utilize uh, the improvement that you get on the latency. So edge computing, I think one is, of course, to, to drive it from uh, from the latency perspective. But other use cases, of course, with with, um, with um, 
with edge compute is that it's very costly to to kind of backhaul a lot of this very detailed data all the way up to a server in maybe another company. So, so you, you, you need to be able to, to filter data very far out as well. And I guess you know, at some point, you know, you, you end up with a scale challenge, don't you? Because if you're building it all in, in one place, I mean, the Amazon Web Services model where everything's sort of central and even though they've got multiple regions and zones, it's effectively the same thing, cookie cut. Uh, I mean, in your case, you're, you're going to have to take a lot of that, that transition from physical to virtual and uh, virtual to cloud microservices. You're going to have to be able to distribute that, not just across your own business, but also through business partners and other parts of the infrastructure because organizations build their telco platforms on Ericsson technology. So with the transition from uh, you know the, the typical hardware design model through to cloud and then you know network function virtualization and through all the digitization you're going, I mean there's a big shift in the digital transformation of Ericsson itself internally and that must come with its own challenges of course. Um, what sort of challenges do you think you're facing or going to face now or what are you facing as far as what you're doing with business partners? I mean you know a lot of companies uh, are building their their infrastructure on on Ericsson, everything from poles and wires and towers through to the switched fabric and software and services. Uh, what are some of the challenges you're facing in that space, supporting some of those business partners with their rollout? Because the challenge is big enough internally yourselves, but it must be tenfold bigger when you've got dozens, if not hundreds, of, of third parties that you're providing hardware and software services to. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the challenges I think with edge compute is that I think the operator have a very golden opportunity to actually have the infrastructure to deploy for instance, things very far out. But today there is a bit of a disconnect in, in the whole ecosystem around uh, the edge compute uh, paradigm. Uh, because I think the operators need to be able to open up these uh, capabilities for, for external players. Uh, and I think here is also a role that we are now trying to take. So, so how can we connect the different plays in the industry? How can we make sure that, that the operator's asset of providing edge compute capabilities to, to anyone can be consumed by, by major enterprises, major cloud players? Because uh, having a server very close to every base stations will be a hefty investment. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we need to find a way how, how that is going to kind of work out from, uh, from an industry perspective. I imagine, I mean, in the early days, you know, typical routers and switches and servers and, and, and various uh, black box technology that sat in telco space, I mean, it was deployed out to the cell level because you, that was the only option. But I imagine now that, you know, I, mean, I remember AOL went through this transition where they used to put these uh, single rack little black boxes out at the edge of the network and, and effectively created the concept of a content delivery network. But when, now when we sort of think about CDN, on the internet, you know, we take it for granted that web traffic is cached and proxied, and we take it for granted that Netflix and iTunes and Google Play are going to have stuff in country and, and near us to push the edge of the network. But what people probably don't understand, and I think it's going to become more and more the case now, I'm sure, for you, is that you're going to have to get to the point where some of these towers that you're building are going to be very generic compute capabilities as far as platforms go, and someone's going to write you know, different capability, aren't they? Yeah, and absolutely. Because if if you take everything for takes for granted, like like content caching and CDNs are in place, but if you look in today in content caches, they can still be like 10, 20, 30 milliseconds away from from you as an end user. Um, when we are talking about the new era of of edge compute, I think we are talking about uh, going down a magnitude on on um, on latency and delays. So so I mean, because the content caches today they are mostly placed. You don't need to have too many of these one in a country, actually. 
But yeah. if you're looking at the computer, I mean, the, the, the amount of, of locations where, where the compute will be will, will increase a lot. Do you think it's going to go from the infrastructure layer that you're rolling out within Ericsson out to the, the cells and, and antennas and towers and, and transponders and so forth? Or do you think some of that, smarts, uh, that smart capability is going to have to move into the devices themselves, whether it's a sensor for IoT or a car moving around or, or a smartphone? Uh, from a technology point of view, if you, for instance, look on container-based technology, etc., you could actually make uh, make the devices uh, part of your cloud. You can actually start to see your your device as, a, and if you have a container image on your device, you could actually see that one as being part of a of a very distributed cloud. Uh, so. In the long run, I think the devices will actually be like an integrated part of the cloud, not really consumers of the cloud, but also integrated as part of the cloud. Yeah, uh, that will happen. Well, they're, they're certainly getting more powerful, aren't they? I mean, you know, my current phone comes with something ridiculous like 512 gigs of flash storage and you know 64 gigs of RAM and quad-core CPU that runs at 2.4 gigahertz or something. I mean, it's it's an insanely it's like 800,000 times more powerful than what we put man on the moon with. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think if you compare like a laptop and a phone, you can see that there's roughly seven years difference between uh, a laptop and a phone in terms of performance. Right. Seven to eight. Yeah. So, so you can you can kind of calculate what you can do on a laptop today. You will be able to do on a phone in seven years. If you were to look into the crystal ball, um, are there any particular areas that jump out of uh, at your mind uh, over the next twelve to eighteen months that you think? inside Ericsson, and particularly with your new role around sort of heading up the R&D portfolio, um, where, where do you think some of the big shifts are going to be in the next 12 to 18 months? Actually, I think the big shift, uh, I mean, shift takes a long time, but I think the big shift that is kind of happening now is, is the introduction of like a cloud-native paradigm for doing telecom application, uh, because the kind of new areas that opens up in terms of being able to provide tailor-made application, tailor-made setups, let's say, for different type of services. I think that will actually change the market a lot uh, because the speed and um, the agility to, to actually do new stuff on the networks compared to history, I think that will that will start kind of evolving into a new type of innovation area. Right. I, think that is, I think the technology will actually start providing a new way of, of thinking about telecom networks. 5G must uh, must be creating all kinds of interesting challenges. I mean, it's exciting, but it must be also creating some headaches. I mean, um, you're you're obviously at the bleeding edge of it. Um, are there some insights you can share around what 5G is going to to do to the world in general? I mean, we, we, you know, there's some big moves around putting sensors on everything, and you know, essentially, you know, I had the privilege, as you know, of spending a number of days uh, recently. We could go inside the Ericsson studio, and, and you know, we we saw things like a really great demo. Uh, uh, illustrating what you're talking about with the you know uh, latency times for things like robots, where you know the robot could get a signal to stand up and move around, but the camera on its head uh, couldn't get the round trip time down fast enough to detect that it's actually falling over, so it fell over. But then we also saw at the other end of the spectrum uh, intelligence put into cars, where we could have um, you know shopping fulfilled into the boot of the car with a smart lock. Um, where do you think some of the the big shifts in 5G's implementation are going to take us? Uh, for, particularly from the consumer space and, and what that might mean to your whole challenge as far as an organization business and, and particularly in the R&D space? 
Yeah, as we talked about previously before, because 5G is one thing is 5G from a technology is more or less reduced latency and, and increased bandwidth. Uh, that will not maybe, as I said, that, but that is not the major change. I think the major change is probably now that we are, instead of being historically focused on consumer-based customers with mobile broadband, uh, people are, are doing things on the smartphone. I think for 5G, the focus is around enterprises and industrial use cases. Uh, and that means that we, we actually start, we need to design systems and networks that can actually very quickly adopt and configure for, for any dedicated industrial use case or industrial service that is needed. Uh, and we also need to be able to connect operators to the enterprises that are using the service. So I think very much on 5G is also the complete paradigm of serving new customers, providing new type of services on the network, instead of only providing the basic four services, as I used to call them, like voice, data, SMSs, and, and VPNs. Right. For 5G, it's actually, we don't know the services that we need to create, but we just know that we need to be able to create new services in a very quick way. I, I guess it's like the disruption we're seeing in, in insurance and, and advertising and banking, isn't it? We talk about fintech disrupting banking. We talk about insure tech disrupting insurance and ad tech disrupting advertising. I guess the, the thing that's impossible to predict now is, is uh, in this shift to uh, digitizing everything, you know, taking bridges and putting sensors on them and collecting data, uh, building smart drones that can go in and out of, of mines to detect risks and other things which we saw in your, your Ericsson studio. Um, really, the, I guess, to paraphrase in many ways, the challenge you've got now is to build an open and robust and scalable high-performance uh, environment uh, with cloud design patterns such that other people can try to figure out what the problems to solve are because there's just too many for you to try and grasp them all yourselves, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because as I said, we used to do the applications ourselves, like voice applications, mobile broadband applications, SMS. But in the future, the applications will be done outside by other players. And we just need to provide them the capabilities to actually do that in, in the best possible way. Reading the, um, the, the breakdown of what the mobile traffic was, uh, particularly application by category, um, I made a note that you know some of the things that are, are even happening now, just with the 4G infrastructure that's in place in the file sharing and web browsing, software download and audio streaming, video streaming, all the social networking messaging and, and video is the big one that's a killer, but that's a one-way stream. I guess what we're going to see soon though is this whole transition where you know I see people walking around with FaceTime and, and other things on their phones now, so they're moving out of voice and, and, and now they're doing video both way. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, that must be a massive nightmare on the network. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the upstream traffic instead of downstream traffic, because I think a lot of the networks today, not only on the mobile side, but also on the fixed side, has been kind of designed to handle a large amount of downstream traffic and, uh, and to kind of uh, try to do that in a very efficient way. I think uh, a lot of the new use cases and a lot of the new services will also be a lot of upstream traffic. So I think that is a change for the network. Well, it's certainly a brave time for us. Now, look, uh, we're, yeah. we're coming up to sort of just past the half an hour. So, um, uh, Matt, so thank you so much for, for making time in your early start at eight in the morning there in Sweden, uh, uh, in Chester. It, um, I know it's a, I know it's cold, it's dark, and uh, it's a tough time of the year to get up and move around. Thank you so much for making time to catch up with me this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure, and it was fantastic to meet you in person the other day uh, inside the Ericsson Studios. And um, I'm sure we'll have you on the, on the show many, many times with other topics as well. Uh, but look, really appreciate you making time to catch up with us. 
Yeah, thank you very much for, for being able to be part of 